this series, as I've mentioned many times, if you've, if you've missed a week, they are online under the Listen and Watch. I really encourage you to go back and listen because this builds, and you're probably seeing that, right, as we go. Like, this is kind of layering each week on top of um, previous ideas and thoughts. One, one image or a illustration, I guess you might say, came to my mind this week. Um, have, who in here has seen Lord of the Rings, the the series, the trilogy, the movies, or maybe you've read, I haven't read the books, I've seen the movies, I love the movies. Um, if, if you're familiar with them, you know how at the beginning of the movie, I mean, it's this huge epic narrative, right, the whole thing, but the first five minutes, they, they, they pack in, here's what happened in the past, and here's a, what went wrong, right, this ring, or ten rings that were made for the different races, and they were given the rings, but what they didn't know is there was one ring which had the power to influence all of those, and humanity just goes bad, like really early on, right? And then the whole story is working that out. Every little component, doesn't matter what race of people it is or whatever, their stories somehow intersect with, with this original problem of what happened with this ring. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, that's kind of the story that the biblical authors are presenting. It's this idea that there, there are these three rebellions that we're told of, and the whole rest of the story, it's working that out. It's, it's, it's intersecting with um, consequences from those. Things that are said are hooking back into one of these three. And, and so one of my hopes and goals is that as we become really familiar with those three, and that's why it's good to return to them and to keep gleaning and saying, what's going on there? What's happening? Um, the, the other pieces will start to make more sense. Oh, that's why that's happening. That's why the author, that's why that comes to his mind when he thinks of this, because he's hooking back into these three. And um, I said we're going to go backwards in the list of the three, and here's the reason why. I can tell you early on, but the first problem we're really familiar with, Genesis 3, the fall. Oh, yeah, yeah. In fact, we're so familiar, we miss things in there. Once you really have a decent grasp on the third rebellion, this is the divorce of the nations, the um, splitting apart of humanity, God assigning them to these other sons of God. And once you see Genesis 6, which um, is this divine transgression where the sons of God... Uh, going to the daughters of women, and then there's the giant clans and what comes from that. <clears throat> what we're going to look at tonight is one that, again, you're probably most familiar with. Most of us are, and that's the first problem, but there's way more packed in there than you've probably ever seen, and hopefully you'll start making some connections because of the first few weeks that we've spent. So this is week five. And we're going to be looking at the first rebellion. You're going to hear words like cosmic garden, cosmic mountain, God's abode, um, this, this snake or serpent, uh, the uh, in, introduction of death to humans. And then, of course, this whole concept that we've looked at each time is in the Jewish mind, the Messiah has to address all of these. He has to, he's the one who's going to repair all three of these things. And so we're kind of building out a better profile on, well, what's the Messiah going to be like? Who is he? What did Jesus have in mind when he came? What was his mission? What was his focus? Did he have these things in the back of his mind? So let's do this. For starters, even though we probably know the story really well, let's go through some of Genesis 1 through 3. We'll just skip some sections. We'll paraphrase, but I want us to get the basic content in our mind of what's happening here in the first few pages of the Bible. If you have your uh, Bibles open or on, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1, and we read this. This is the beginning of the creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form, and it was void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, that's the waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God goes, the author goes into this six day laying out of God is creating. And then on that sixth day, we're told, let me jump down to uh, verse 26. On that sixth day, then he's getting close to the end of it. Then God said, Let us, and there's a lot of little things here that we're going to come back to, let us make man our image after our likeness. 
And then here's kind of what some of that likeness is, dominion. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds uh, of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, God said to them. <clears throat> and, and, I'm sorry, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over all the things, and then he just kind of goes into what that will involve. And then there's the conclusion, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, host means that the ones who fill, the host of heaven are the ones who fill them, the host of earth, the ones who fill, these would be animals and creatures and humans. Um, on the seventh day, uh, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And then we get kind of a, another creation account. You could almost think of it like if you've read the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're sort of looking at it from different perspectives. Many times authors, commentators will say, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, it's kind of a synoptic account of creation. It's giving two accounts of creation overlap, but it's kind of a synoptic look. And then we're told, you know, when God had first created, it says, the Lord formed the man... This is verse 7 of chapter 2, of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man become a, <clears throat> became a living creature, and Yahweh God planted a garden in Eden <clears throat> in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made spring up every tree that is pleasing to the sight, <clears throat> good for food. And then we're told of a couple, two trees in particular that are significant. There's the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and this is a tree of testing, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he gives some specifics as to where this location was, uh, gives some rivers, it has specific geography to it. The Lord took the man and he planted him, he put him in the garden to work it, to keep it, and he commanded him, saying, you must surely eat of every tree uh, of the garden, but that tree of testing uh, that tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, can't touch it. You, you can't eat it, he says. You shall not, for in the day you do, now here's, here's, here's what's hanging in the balance. Death will enter into the human story. Then Yahweh God said, it's not good for man to be lonely. I'm going to make a helper for him. Creates all the animals, parades them by. The obvious observation is nothing is suitable for this imager of God. And so God does something special, creates woman out of him, takes her out of him, so to speak, and then back together unites. The author says, this is, this is why we do marriage. This is, this is the theological grounding for it. For this reason, a man will leave his father, mother will be united to his wife. Chapter 3. Now, <clears throat> there was a serpent. was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He, this is the serpent, said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. This is the tree of testing. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like Elohim. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delightful to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit, ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. He ate. Then their eyes were opened. They knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man said to his and man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees in the garden. But Yahweh God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, oh, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? You have eaten of the tree which I command you not to eat. And of course, the man says in good form, she made me do it. Right? The woman whom you gave to me. It's not just her fault, it's kind of yours too, because you're the one who gave her. 
the woman who you gave to me, um, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And Yahweh God said to the woman, he's going down the line, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And then Yahweh God says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, this is the seed, the offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And then to the woman, he gives some consequences. To the man, he gives some more consequences. Um, <clears throat> then we read this. Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. That's the second time the us is used in the account. <clears throat> Knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life. So this is a, that's a connection to this sort of contingent immortality. He'll live forever. Therefore, Yahweh God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man, he drove out the man, this is interesting, we'll come back to this, at the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Interesting story. We're familiar with it, right? <clears throat> John Walton, he's, he's an Old Testament... Um, professor, scholar at Wheaton College. He's written a number of books, um, ones titled like The Lost World of Adam and Eve, The Lost World of Genesis 1. And he makes a very interesting observation. He says, to an ancient person, Israelite or otherwise, when they read this passage, it screamed temple. Now, you might hear them and be like, what are you talking about? I didn't, I didn't hear the word temple in there once. It wasn't mentioned, and it wasn't. But to the ancient mind, what, what you just heard described was God creating his temple where he would live. Um, let, me, let me kind of tease it out like this. Um, in the ancient world, pretty much across the board, anytime you built a temple, it was only a building until the God came into the building. Okay? It's not a temple. It functioned as a temple once the presence of the deity is inside the building. And so what was required for that? Well, first, you know, you'd spend the time cutting stone, building things, finding the elements that you would be using in their um, furnishings, <clears throat> that sort of thing. But there was an inauguration ceremony. And the inauguration ceremony was a seven-day ceremony to bring in the presence of your deity. Then it is a temple, okay? So if, if that's how you know temples work, first you create spaces, you put things in those spaces that belong there, then you have the seven-day inauguration ceremony, and then your God dwells, and it's his, it's his living place. It's his temple. Then you come to the creation account, and it says, you got these six days, okay, I, I see. But then the seventh day, it says God rested is the word that's used. And what's really interesting, the concept of rest biblically, it's not, it's like, our, we get about 20% of the concept. We hear the word rest and I think take a nap, right? <laughs> um, sleeping, not, not, not being active. I hear rest and I think inactivity. That's not the biblical concept of rest. The biblical concept of rest means ruling, when God rests in his house, it would be like the same as saying, we've got a new president and he's resting in the Oval Office. That doesn't mean he's sleeping in the Oval Office. What does it mean? He's got everything under his control. He's ruling from the Oval Office, now in charge, now not having any other enemies. He has won. He has taken the position. That's the idea of it. Think about if you've moved into a new house. You ever move into a new place and... You remember what it was like to live out of boxes? It, it, you're not at rest. You know what I mean by that? Things are messy. Things are not in their place. They're, they're, they're disorganized. And of course, that's, that's the language used at the beginning of Genesis 1. He cre created the earth was what? Formless. Didn't have any function to it. And it's void. It's, em it's empty of who should be there. This is unpacking the boxes. This is getting the house 
ready to be lived in. So here's an important thing to think about rest. The opposite of rest is not activity. The opposite of rest is unrest. You know what that feels like? You know what it feels like to have unrest in your life, right? It's chaos. It's things not functioning and working the way they're supposed to work. So this idea of God resting means that he's got it under control. He's, he's now in the control center of the cosmos. And think about it. This is the language that's used throughout Scripture. We read that God gave the Israelites rest from their enemies. What does that mean? Taking naps now? No. It means that they had some kind of order in their life now. They had some kind of security in their life now. Same thing when Jesus says, remember these words? Come to you, come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you naps. No, I will give you rest. What is that? What's the meaning of that? This is the idea that following Christ brings a greater level of order and stability into your life because that's what the kingdom of God is. Does that make sense? So rest is not sleep. It's not inactivity. It's I've, I've got everything under control, and it's stable. God is resting in his place. There are, again, we won't go into all of There are uh, things stated in here, just little things sprinkled in, that lets the original reader know, oh, this is definitely a temple. God has just created a temple. The garden is God's abode. It's his temple where he is going to live. Here's here's one that, again, we completely missed. Do you remember at the end of chapter 3, it says this, um, at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim. Cherubim are throne guardians. Cherubim, seraphim, we'll talk about those, but these are ancient concept of a throne guardian. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life on the east side. I remember as a kid reading that, and I remember thinking like, why didn't Adam just go around to the west side, man? Just break in that way, you know? Like go to the, why the east side? Why would he say, why do you only have to, pr- to protect one side? Well, think about it like this. Let me, let me show you an image. This is an image of uh, Solomon's temple. <clears throat> Ancient temples are virtually always oriented east, the direction of east. And this is just an image of one, but this is, again, across the board. Ancient temples, you would orient east. Why is that? Well, in the morning before the sun comes up, the priests would come into whatever temple it was, open the doors. Do you see the, like, do you see the doors where that is, like right here, this thing? This is the entrance, okay? So that's, that's east, a direction. They'd open the doors to the temple. There would be a long corridor, and at the end of the corridor was the house, the room of the god. And there was all, typically a, some sort of an image, a gold something or another, in the room that represented his presence, his glory, you might say. The priest opened the door, and then what happens? Sun rises, the sunbeam goes down the corridor, it hits in this dark room, it hits this gold feature. Can you imagine what the room looks like? It's creating luminosity. You're saying this is what the presence of the deity is like. It's luminous. It's beautiful. Okay? Do you get that? There's only one way into a temple. One, One door, and it's on the east side. So when we're told... God banished them and set a guard on the east side. What does the ancient reader immediately know? We can't, that's God's temple. Eden was to be understood as the abode of God, the, the, where his presence, where he lived, actually where he lived. And of course, the intention was he's supposed to be living with us there. But now that's been, that's been cut off. So when the ancient reader reads Genesis 1 through 3, and these are just a couple examples. It's littered all throughout. It screams temple. It screams temple. That's why when we actually get to the temple, like Solomon's temple, what do they, how do they decorate the inside, the walls and the curtains? Pomegranate trees, animals. Why is that? Because they want the person who goes in there to think back about the garden because that was his first temple. We're, we're trying to recreate something that reminds us of the original temple where we were supposed to live with him, 
And now we've got this very tentative, eh, can't, most of us can't go in. One can, once a year. But <clears throat> do you see what's being created in their mind, what they're thinking about this? Now, why is this important? You might say, so what? Where did God plant Adam and Eve? In the garden. In his temple. What this means is this, the most natural thing in God's mind is that you live with him. It's the most natural thought in God's mind is that your family who lives in his house, honored guests, but family, you are family. This is why the New Testament authors, when they pick up on what does it mean to be restored to the relationship, what's the, what's the image they use? You've been adopted into the family of God. And we'll get to a week where we look at why the familial language and what does that mean for our destinies and our <clears throat> futures. But this is the most natural thing in the world is for you to be in the presence of God, for me to be in the presence of God. Now, the language of Eden, I want to look at that. It's described as one of these will kind of make sense to us. Another will seem way more foreign. A cosmic garden. You kind of go, well, yeah, sure, it's the Garden of Eden. <laughs> or the cosmic mountain. Let me, let me try to explain. Cosmic is the idea of where the God is, okay, where the divine one is. So it's a cosmic garden. It's a cosmic mountain. Well, why those? Why mountains? The, the ancient people, when they thought of, where does a deity live? Um, and the ancient people across the board would say, well, um, you know, gods don't like to, you know, live with the riffraff, you know, the smelly, unwashed masses, us. So they live in remote places. Where's a remote place? Well, in the ancient world, before people scaled mountains, people didn't climb mountains, you realize, for a long time. Before people were scaling high mountains, where, where's a remote place that would be away from the commoners? Well, it's a mountain. That makes sense. That's where the gods live. They live on a mountain. Why is it that when we got to um, Genesis chapter 11 and the people stopped at Babel, what did they build? An artificial mountain. Why is that? Because if you're going to call down your God, you want him to live in a place that feels like home. You want them to come to a place that's going to feel natural. You build a artificial mountain. And again, we talked about this. This ziggurat, you know, that's an example. That's that's the Mesopotamian uh, temple structures that you would build. Um, and so it's spoken of as a mountain. It's also spoken of as a garden, as a cosmic garden. And you say, well, why is that? Well, think of it this way: most people back then have um, subsistence living. They're, they're living hand-to-mouth. Their hope is, man, I sure hope I have food tomorrow. Uh, I sure hope I have enough water tomorrow. I hope my animals have enough food and water if I'm lucky enough to have animals, right? You don't know. That's your living. It's hot, arid, desert, dry areas. And when you think, well, where would the gods live? Well, they would live in a place where it's just lush. I mean, there's food literally hanging at arm's reach, right? And there's, and there's uh, you know, streams of rivers. This is why uh, societies, where do they begin? They begin on rivers, right? You need water. Well, the gods have that in, in, in mass. They just rivers flowing all over the place. It's lush. It's green. They have no need and no want for anything, okay? So do you see kind of what's building in their mind? When they think of God's space, it's going to be the best. Whatever it is, it's going to be lush, and it's going to be the absolute best. So listen to, <clears throat> this is um, Ezekiel. We're going to come back to this when we look at the, um, the serpent figure because it, it loops back into that. <clears throat> That's my wife telling her I'm at the bar. <clears throat> um, okay, here's what we read. He says, I play, and again, we'll figure out the who it is. I placed you... You were on the holy mountain of God. Now, if we go back up, though, what's he talking about? You were in Eden. And you might go, I, I didn't get that part about it being a mountain back in pages one and two. You've, you have to think like an ancient. And when they speak about where God is, they use mountain imagery, garden imagery. You were in Eden, the garden of God. And then he goes on to explain some things. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain 
of God. And then later he refers to again down at the bottom, the mountain of God. This is the consistent imagery that's used all throughout the ancient world and also in the Bible to speak of where does God live? For instance, if you go to, if you go to Canaanite religion, the Canaanites' high god was El. He's named El. He lived on a mountain. He lived in a tent. These are common ideas across the board as to where the gods live and what their existence is like. Um, So Eden is not the whole earth. Oftentimes you tend to think, well, Eden was just everywhere. No, Eden had specific geography. Remember, we're, we're told, we didn't read it, but there are four rivers. Euphrates, the Tigris, the Gihon, can't remember the fourth one, but it's telling us this is a specific piece of land that is God's abode, his place, and Adam and Eve's job, while it is living in God's space, they were given a job about the non-Eden part, the rest of the world that's still wild and woolly, (laughs) Um, because even different verbs are used. The verbs used for them when they're in the garden, it's just like, just kind of maintain it, care for it. The words when it's when you're out of the garden, you have to have dominion. You have to subdue. Do you get, do you get the difference there? So that's, that needs to be subdued. It's not like it is in here. But their job was, I want you to make the rest of the world like Eden. You're to bring the order, structure, beauty of this out into that. And again, there are, there are implications as we look forward even to our own lives and our own selves. And he says, this is a big job. So you better get busy, have, have a bunch of kids, because you're going to need a lot of people to do this job. Now, God could have made the entire world like Eden, right? Everything, but why didn't he? Why didn't he just make it all perfect? <laughs> he made a piece of it like that because he wanted partnership. And this is something we keep coming back to. The whole concept of us being imagers, God wants to partner with us. He wants participation and what he's wanting to do in this world. So humanity is a co-worker with God. Now, there are a number of things in Israelite religion that are very similar to other cultures around them. The Egyptians, the Mesopotamians, the Canaanites. There's a lot of shared culture because they live in the same area, right? They just share stuff. Sometimes there are very unique pieces, though. This is one of the unique pieces. Every other creation account, everyone. Why did the gods create humans? They wanted slaves. That's it. That, that is the reason. <laughs> and when they decide to wipe them out, it's because, ah, they're so stinky and dirty and they make a lot of noise. You know, that's the kind of stuff that's said about them. This is the only account in the ancient world that's unique to the Israelites, which said, God created us not to be slaves, but to be family members, to be partners, to actually live with him in his cosmic mountain. It's not remote from us. He put his cosmic mountain with us. He put his cosmic garden with us. He said, I want you here. It's utterly unique. Utterly unique that every human being is said to be in the image of God, an imager. You go to the other nations, uh, the king might be the image of God. Uh, Pharaoh was the incarnation of Horus. He was God. Everyone else is just a peasant to be used. This is utterly different in that respect, which I think is a beautiful thing. Now, who's in Eden? Well, obviously, humanity. Humanity's in in Eden. Um, And this is, let's read kind of a status update on who we are. This is Psalm chapter 8, verse 4. The author writes this. He's he's thinking about creation, about its beauty and bigness. And he says, uh, uh, you know, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Um, it you know, blows my mind. But, but then he says, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You have made him a little lower than... Let me show you what word, because we've, um, we've looked at this a number of times. Do you see that word right there? You can see the transliteration of it in blue. Elohim, the gods. So it literally says, you have made him a little lower than the gods. 
which are the sons of God. Those are some, these individuals that we came. Your heavenly beings, these created divine supernatural beings, a family, you created us just a little bit underneath them. So who's in the garden? Humans that are created, they're, they're imagers too. They're created a little bit lower than the Elohim, than the other gods. So who was with God when he created? If you remember from week one, we, we read this. This is Job chapter 38, verse 4. He's saying to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars... Now, star language is, is to be thought of as kind of mapped onto these supernatural Elohim, these divine beings. When the morning stars sang together and all of the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God shouted for joy. Who was with God at creation of the world? His divine family, his supernatural family. They are there with him. <clears throat> this is the reason why I wanted us to start with Genesis 11, Deuteronomy 32, to establish, okay, God has this divine family. He has this divine counsel, these sons of God. <clears throat> because when we read the, the creation account, we see there's more going on there than we might have originally seen. <clears throat> we are supposed to think of ourselves, there's a connection between God, His divine family, imagers in the unseen realm, and His human family, imagers in this realm. See, this is why, and this is why... Now, if you've, grew up, if you've grown up in church, you, you probably were told when it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And you go, oh, that's a trinity. Well, for multiple reasons, that's not a very good answer. What I believe the author has in mind, this is God announcing his plans to his heavenly counsel, to the divine beings there. Commentators have noticed for a long time there's an interesting, almost odd. He says, hey, let us, plural, do it. Then when it happens, it goes to singular verbs. So God did it. He did it. He did it. Because you might think to yourself, are you saying that a bunch of gods made us? <laughs> no. The author just wants you to link in your mind. You have a connection. You're similar to Yahweh God, and you're similar to his unseen realm divine beings. Now, again, you know, lest you think this is sort of bringing them in too much, let me, let me try to give you an example. Suppose I said to my family, let's move houses, okay? I put the house up for sale. I list it. I sell it. I hire a company. I move all the stuff. I move our things. I pay for the house, okay? Who bought the house and did it? I did. But I said, hey, guys, I got an idea. Let's move houses. So the announcement is to his counsel, the activity is his alone. But the author wants you to think the us part is we were supposed to be there with them, and there's been a break between us and them, this divine family, the unseen ones. <clears throat> we're to see a connection between God and his divine and human families. And we see that in the future. At the end where it reaches, it's restored. Those things are Restored. You remember where uh, Paul makes the comment about uh, Jesus is going to, um, it's not the word redeem, reconcile all things to himself, things on earth and things in heaven. He's going to reconcile, that's a broken relationship. We are not reconciled with that family. God's original intent is a mixed family, <laughs> and that is unreconciled at this point. <clears throat> so now, who is the serpent? Let's turn to that. Um, the word for that, you, I think you have in your bulletin, there's some kind of vocab that I think can be helpful in doing this. The serpent is, is called the nahash. That's, that's the Hebrew term for this particular thing, whatever it is here, this nahash. <clears throat> um, this is not a member of the animal kingdom. This is not a mere snake. So who is it? Let me see if I can... I want to read two passages for you that 
aren't directly talking about this original rebel. Um, and you're going to notice I'm not calling him Satan for a reason yet. Okay? This original rebel, this Nachash, this snake. Um, have you ever seen, I just, I was trying to find, okay, I have no idea who this guy is. I just found a picture because it served my, my, my purposes, okay? Have you ever seen someone do this on a picture to somebody? <clears throat> when you draw little uh, red horns and you draw a little, little mustache and a little goatee thing, right? What are you doing when you do that to a picture of somebody? Yeah, it's, you're, you're defacing. But what are you wanting the, the viewers to think about this person? You want them to think something about their behavior, their character, right? You've probably done this. Maybe the pictures of me. How dare you? Um, <clears throat> you're taking something. Here's kind of another example. My kids have, when they were little, they had these books. It's like a human anatomy book. And when you open it, there's a solid page of like a skeleton, right? And then there's a clear plastic page of like the vascular system and then you lay it over on top of you know what I mean by that and then you've got another clear plastic page of muscle yeah muscular system you, lay it right, you know what I'm saying by that can you picture that <clears throat> Isaiah and Ezekiel are going to trash talk either the king of Tyre or the king of Babylon and what they're going to do is they're going to take <clears throat> the king of Tyre and they're going to lay over it this original rebel. Does that make sense? And they're going to they're gonna do this. <laughs> this is essentially what they're doing, but in a much more sophisticated way, in a more literary way. Let me get it. It's a frightening picture, isn't it? Okay. So <clears throat> what I mean now, here, here's, here's what's important. What you're going to hear, this is not... The point of what's being said is not to talk about the original rebel. The point is to talk about this king. In this particular case, this is Isaiah. Um, he's talking about, yep, the king of Babylon, okay? <clears throat> so he's um, bringing this sort of condemnation on the king of Babylon, and where is it? Uh, Isaiah fourteen twelve. I passed it. Okay, <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, we read this. So he started talking about the king. He's got him there. Now he's going to lay on someone else to kind of draw the horns on him. O day star, son of the dawn. Remember, what's star language? It's divine beings. Like that's, so he's got some divine being in his mind. How you are cut down to the ground. You who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars. Who, again, who are the stars? These are the host of heaven, the divine beings. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly. That's language for Israel, for Jerusalem. I will sit on that. Um, <clears throat> in the far reaches of the north, I will ascend high above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol. Sheol was the word for the grave, for the uh, place of the dead, to the far reaches of the pit. Okay? So he's got some supernatural being in mind that he's kind of laying over on top of um, the king of Babylon. <clears throat> Ezekiel, he has a different context. Ezekiel is, um, he, he's, he's writing to the king of Tyre, but he does the exact same thing. And we read this, <clears throat> Ezekiel 28, verse 11. Uh, Word Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre. Say to him, thus says the Lord. Okay? You were a signet of perfection, full of wisdom and beauty. You were in where? Eden. Well, clearly the king of Tyre was never in Eden. Okay? Who does he have in mind here? The garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And then he gives this whole list of stones. Um, on that day you were created. They were <clears throat> prepared. You were, what? Oh, this is interesting. You were an anointed guardian cherub. Interesting. I placed you, 
you were on the, we talked about this before, the holy mountain, the cosmic mountain of God. This is his dwelling place. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in all your ways from your day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in the midst, in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. So here's the question. If he has in mind some original rebel, and he's setting it in Eden, there aren't many options for us, right? This is a supernatural divine rebel who is in Eden, in the garden, in the cosmic mountain, who wanted to ascend, and God cast him down to the earth. And Ezekiel has in mind, oh, you're kind of like that guy, king of Tyre. <laughs> you have some of those same motivations. I'm kind of laying, I'm, I'm drawing the little horns on you. Well, what's interesting for us about it is this lets us know how did the Israelites think about the Nahash, about that original rebel? What did they assume? What did they think as they read this text? Because it might be different than what we think about it. <clears throat> Number one, they think of him as a cherub. Cherubim and seraphim are the same things, but from different cultures. A seraphim is a throne guardian conceived of in Egypt. A cherubim is a throne guardian conceived of in Mesopotamia. So the way they look is different sometimes. Their job title, their, their, what they're supposed to do, it's the exact same thing. Throne guardian, okay? And again, you know, we, we meet a couple, and there's actually a lot of cherubim mentioned in Scripture. Uh, the, the seraph or the seraphim, is, you've, you've got it like in Isaiah, and that's it. Now, you might kind of wonder, well, why, why, do, why does Ezekiel use cherubim, Mesopotamian? Why does Isaiah use seraphim and Egyptian idea? It's just their contexts are, are, are different. Um, and we see some examples. Um, for instance, let me pull up one more picture. Um, during the time of some of you guys who have come to Israel with me uh, might remember when we go into the ancient city of David <clears throat> that's being excavated and has been excavated <clears throat> they have found there these um, uh, it's called a bula it's a, it's a clay seal that was stamped with the king's stamp and then in a fire it hardened and so they've found a number of these. This one right here, this, this is one from King Hezekiah. Now, if you look on the imagery there, it's very clear Egyptian iconography. It looks very Egyptian. I'll, I'll show you even some other ones. This one's a little bit more clear just because um, it's a picture, it's a drawing of it, okay? <clears throat> these are two from King Hezekiah. Do you notice the Egyptian iconography here? Kings during this time had good relationship with Egypt, and so they were familiar with, there was sort of this cognitive concept of, yeah, you, this, is, this is how you demonstrate and talk about royalty and power and throne imagery. You would use this kind of in a shared way. And so when the Israelites talk about a throne guardian, they're going to use Egyptian, Mesopotamian concepts when they speak about, well, what are they like? They want the readers to understand them. <laughs> and so they use what people understand. And so what's interesting is the... Uh, let me see if I have one of the... <clears throat> a seraphim, we knew much less about because they're not mentioned in Scripture much, very little, just in Isaiah. A seraphim is a serpent, oftentimes with wings... Now you say, why the wings? Well, um, um, a, a, a cobra, you know what they can do with their necks? Right? They, I, don't, I don't know, folds, I don't know what they're called. Right? They, they expand their necks like this. Well, in art, they would just accentuate it, right? And so it looked like wings. A cobra has wings. So you can go all over the ancient world, and you see a seraphim very often is a snake with wings, it's a serpent who's flying. And they're a seraphim. They're a throne guardian. Interesting, you've probably seen pictures of the pharaoh. Do you remember what pharaoh has on the top of his hat? 
<clears throat> it's a cobra head, right? And the idea was this throne guardian will protect him, okay? What I think is so fascinating is, um, let me go back to Isaiah. So Isaiah has, I don't know if you've read this before, Isaiah chapter 6, this is the vision where he sees the, the, the temple of God filled with God's glory. John in the New Testament quotes this passage, but he says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, <clears throat> I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. And the author of the Gospel of John says, that was Jesus, interestingly enough. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple above him. And above him, this is interesting, above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to the other. So there seemed to be two of these seraphs there. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. <clears throat> One thing I think is so cool, let me, let me read a section for you from, uh, there's an academic uh, dictionary called the Dictionary of Deities and Demons. Doesn't that sound like a fun, exciting book? It's this dictionary of all the ancient world, like you know, who were all of these divine beings, how were they thought of, and he writes this. So remember, think of the Pharaoh, he's got the seraph, um, um, he's got this cobra above him. Okay, think of the imagery. He's protecting him. When Isaiah sees it, he says, I see the seraphim above Yahweh. But again, remember how there's, there's differences. And I, I love that this is um, stated in the, in the article here, this academic dictionary. Um, he says this idea of these snakes uh, was taken from the Egyptian word for the cobra figure worn on the forehead of the Egyptian gods and kings whom the cobra protects by means of her fire, because they you know, would spit out fire. He says, concerning this function in Isaiah 6, you know, like Isaiah sees this thing, <clears throat> feathers covering displays a noteworthy mutation in the snake motif. Instead of protecting Yahweh, I love this, listen to this, the seraphim need their wings to cover themselves from feet to head from Yahweh's consuming holiness. Yahweh does not need their protection. Isaiah thus uses the seraphim to underscore the supreme holiness of the God on the throne. Isn't that a cool variation? They say, oh yeah, they're their throne guardians, but they're not doing anything to protect him. They're, in fact, they're covering themselves because God's holiness is just so absolutely radiating and amazing. So using popular cultural imagery, but... but instilling with a distinctly Israelite theological understanding. And so this character that we see is, he, he's, he's beginning to take shape. Um, and what you might, I mentioned earlier, um, I'm not going to call him Satan right away. And here's why. Many scholars have a problem saying the original uh, rebel in Genesis 3 is Satan, is the devil. Uh, and you might be going, well, that's crazy. What are you talking about? Like, you, know, you know, clearly it is. And I think it is, too. Um, in Revelation, John, the writer of Revelation, identifies it. He goes, that ancient snake, that serpent, the devil, Satan. So John clearly thinks it is. But the reason why you oftentimes find scholars is they say, well, the word Satan, as, as far as a proper name, it's never used in the Old Testament. It's never used in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's not a personal Name. Now, again, I think there's still a way to make sense of how it is that the Jews throughout time did begin to identify this original rebel as, because here's what we have to realize, Satan, it, it's not a personal name. It means adversary, the adversary, okay, the opposer, the ones who stands against. But again, many scholars say, I have a hard time saying the Nahash of Genesis 3, that is Satan, that is the devil. Um, and what we're going to do is next week, we're going to continue on because I'm out of time. Uh, I thought this might, be, might go into two weeks. Next week, I want to look at some things. One thought you might ha have had come to your mind is, well, wait a minute, what about the book of Job? You ever read the book of Job, these first couple chapters? 
and it says, Satan came before God, that might not mean what you think it means. Um, this, this is not the Satan of Genesis 3. This is something else. So next week, we're going to look at some examples of where we think we might see Satan, even in the Old Testament, and then look at what it was that the consequences of what was done by Jesus, what that did, and the, the original consequence of death, how exactly that's overcome. So here's what I'm going to ask us to do. We're going to sing a song as that leads us into communion. And so um, in our new communion elements, uh, grab one of these, go to a place in the room, go to your seat, wherever it might be, and on your own, take the elements. Um, and let this be something that, again, I'm, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that as we're doing this study each time, each week, it's, it's enlarging our appreciation, our understanding of what our God has done, of what an epic story it is that he wants you in his house, he wants you in his presence. It's the most normal thing in his mind is that you would be there. So the elements, the bread representing Christ's body broken for us on the cross, the juice, his blood shed. If I can read a, a benediction for you as we go. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can stand against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all, how will he not also with him generously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? King Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Jesus? Amen. That's our hope. That's what we go in. That's what we live out of. Hope you guys have a great week. Again, thanks always just for your, your diligence, have an appetite for this, and really, really digging in. So hope you have a great week. Stay safe and warm out there.